Welcome to Seacoast Church. My name is Ernest Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at the Long Point campus. I want to welcome all of you joining us this weekend, whether you're here at the Long Point campus, maybe at another venue, or maybe you're at one of our other campuses like Greensboro or Asheville, or maybe you're at our Greece campus. I hear God's doing some amazing things there. And when you guys are ready for a full-time campus pastor, you just let me know because I'll be on my way there. Man, was the Easter weekend not an exciting weekend here at Seacoast? Amazing. We saw over 17,000 people come through the doors, and so many of those individuals gave their lives to Christ for the first time, or we recommitted their lives to Christ, or came to the cross just simply laying down sins or fears or just things that were holding them back from their relationship with God. And it was such an exciting opportunity, exciting time to be a part of. But you know, this, this Easter season is exciting for me and my family for another reason. Right now, we are expecting the birth of our first child, uh, Wyatt Daniel Smith. Yeah, we're, uh, we're excited. We're right, he's right at the 40 week mark, so I know that at any point my wife could be calling me and, uh, and going into, uh, labor. So we have a contingency process now just in case that happens during, during this time with you. Uh, but I, it's been a cool process for us. I, I, I found myself becoming more passionate about things that I, I didn't care about nine or ten months ago. I mean, I find myself becoming more passionate about baby toys, about baby clothes, diapers. I mean, who knew that there was a thing called a PPTP that would prevent your son from peeing on you when you were changing his diaper? I mean, just some cool stuff out there. You know, it's been, it's been cool to learn about. It's just, you know, one of those things that I've become more passionate about. And, but the greatest passion that I have throughout this whole process is making sure that my son knows Jesus Christ. And that one day he comes to know him in a real personal way. It gives his life fully over to him and that God uses him in a mighty way to change this world and to impact God's kingdom. That's my greatest passion. And every day I find myself praying over him for that, that God would even speak to him now, that God would even uh, give him dreams and visions and, and allow him to come to know his voice even now. I'm praying for him for that every single day. And every day, almost every day, I'll slip in another prayer. God, help me to be a great father. You see, one of the greatest fears that I've had growing up is that I won't be a good dad. Anybody can attest to that? Any parents? You know, I, I, for me, it's just been a fear. And I, I, don't, I, I know that it's not godly. I know that it's not biblical. But for some reason, I've just held on to this fear that I won't be a good dad. I won't be a successful parent. And, you know, I think that's natural. I think it's natural for us to want to be successful, to want to be successful parents, or to be successful at something in life. For some of us, we, we crave to be successful at athletics whether it's on the field or maybe as a coach or maybe just to have your team be successful. For some of us, we, we crave success in, in our appearance and the way we look. And we spend hours and hours working on our body, thinking that if we can appear to people a certain way, then maybe we will have success. For some of us, it's in the corporate world. And we think climbing that corporate ladder or maybe just keeping our jobs during this economic time would be a mark of success. And for some of us, it begins in our homes. We think that if our families are, are good to go, if our kids become stable individuals, if our marriages are good, then we're successful as people. But you know, the reality about life, not only do we crave success, but we experience failures a lot. And I know that some of us have walked into this place this morning, and maybe we feel like we've failed in some area of our lives, and maybe we feel hopeless. For some of us, maybe it's in our dating relationships, and we're wondering if anyone will ever take notice of us, if we'll ever be married. For some of us, maybe our, our kid has walked away from the faith or walked away from our families, and we're wondering what we've done wrong as parents, what we could have done better. 
For some of us, maybe we've uh, hit some crisis during this economic time and we're wondering if we'll ever be able to provide for our families again. We feel like a failure in that area. And still for others of us, we find our marriages right now on rocky ground, maybe even experiencing divorce. And as a spouse, we feel like we failed. And in life, we feel like we failed. You know, we all yearn for success in life, yet we all experience failures. So how do we achieve true success in life? That's what we're going to answer today. How do you and I achieve true success in life? And we're going to answer that based on a passage found in Acts chapter 21. If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been studying the book of Acts. And this week we're starting a new series called Arrested. Because in Acts chapter 21, that's what we see happening to Paul, the greatest evangelist of all time. We see Paul getting arrested. And for the rest of Acts, he stays in, in, in chains for the gospel of the Lord. And so, uh, but up until this point, we see the church experiencing great success. I mean, the Holy Spirit has come upon the church. They've done great miracles. We see our first martyr, the first person giving up their life for faith in Jesus Christ. And then we see this guy named Paul come onto the scene. And Paul comes onto the scene first as a persecutor of the church. And then God grabs a hold of his life, changes it radically. And Paul becomes the greatest missionary of all time. So in Acts chapter 21, Paul is heading toward Jerusalem. And he's going there to deliver some money. You see, Paul's planted these Gentile churches, which was, you know, non-Jewish churches all throughout the Roman Empire. And he's asked them to give money to the Jerusalem church, not because they needed money, but simply because the Jerusalem church was primarily made up of, of Jewish converts. And Paul wanted to make sure that the church, the church of Jesus Christ, was united as one. And that the Gentiles and the Jews knew that they had one focus, one primary goal, and that was to worship God together. So Paul was coming to Jerusalem to deliver this money. But before he did, before he entered Jerusalem, he stopped off at a little town called Caesarea. And that's where we pick up our, with our passage today. It's Acts chapter 21, verses 8 through 14. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to it, or it'll be up on the screen or on your notes. It says this, Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we thank you, God. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your truth. God, we pray that today you would speak to us in a powerful way. Father, no matter where we are, God, we, we know that you know our situation, you know our lives, Father, and you love us so much. And we pray that, God, through your word, you would speak to us exactly where we are and that our lives would be transformed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's the picture. You've got Paul, and he's stopped off at this port city of Caesarea with a couple of his companions. And they're staying there a few days, and then this prophet named Agabus comes down from, from Judea, and he tells Paul, he takes Paul's belt, and he says, and he ties up his hands and his feet, and he says, the, the Jews in Jerusalem are going to do the same thing to the owner of this, of this belt. Now, can you get this picture? I mean, imagine if this happened to you. Imagine if a prophet came down and, you know, took your belt and wrapped your, uh, your arms and wrapped your feet up and said, the Holy Spirit says this, the Jews in Jerusalem are going to do the same thing to the owner of this belt and they're going to hand them over to the Gentiles. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's me, I'm thinking of one of two things. Number one, Agabus has lost his mind. I mean, throw that guy away, lock the key up, throw it away, you know, just put him away. This guy is crazy. Or number two, 
man, that ain't my belt. <laughs> I mean, I rented that thing. You know, that's Mark's belt. That's John's belt. That's somebody else. That's not my belt. But this isn't how Paul responds. You see, Paul doesn't care about what's going to happen to him. He doesn't care about what the end result's going to be. He ultimately cares about what God is calling him to do. And he knows that God is calling him to Jerusalem to go there. And it doesn't matter if the Jews are going to bind him. It doesn't matter if he's going to be arrested because it's simply what God is calling him to do. So it begs the question, how is Paul so focused? I mean, how is Paul so passionate about Jesus Christ that he's willing to go to a place that he knows persecution is going to happen in his life? Well, I think the answer is simple. I think Paul understands where true success lies in his life. You see, Paul, by all definition of the word, was successful early on. He studied under one of the greatest rabbis of the Jewish faith. He was a part of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish judicial council. Paul was one of the great religious leaders of his time. I mean, the little kids looked up to him. People wanted to be like Paul. By all definition of the word, he was successful, yet he wasn't until he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And God transformed his life and gave him a commission at that point. He said, Paul, I'm sending you out to all the world to proclaim God's truth to those who have never heard. And God uses Paul in a mighty way. Paul knew God's calling in his life. And, that's, and he, under, he began to understand at that point that true success was not in the, the material or the worldly, but true success lies in our ability to follow God. True success lies in our ability to follow God. You see, success is not found in our ability to learn. It's not found in our ability to achieve. It's not, it's not found in our ability to run a home or raise a kid or to be a great husband or a great wife. True success is only found in our ability to follow God. That's why Paul is able to remark in verse 13, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul was ready. He was focused because he knew God was calling him to simply follow him. So how do you and I become like Paul? I mean, how do we live our lives of great success? How do we live our lives so focused like Paul does? That, that's what we're going to answer. How do we achieve? How do you and I achieve success like Paul did in his life? Let me give you three things we can pull from this passage of how we can achieve true success in our life. Number one, don't be persuaded by someone else's definition of success. Don't be persuaded by someone else's definition of success. You see, as Paul's standing around and he's listening to this prophesy, prophecy by Agabus, he's got some companions that are hanging out with him, some strong believers that are there, and they're listening to the same prophecy. And the Bible says that they began pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And that word pleading in the Greek is perikaleo, and it literally means began begging. They began begging Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. I mean, you can see them begging right now, Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. I mean, I can take the money for you, Paul. Anybody can take the money. I'll tell, just write a letter. I'll tell them what you want to say. Don't go, Paul. Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. Anybody else can go, Paul. If you go, you're going to be arrested. It'll be so much better for you to remain free because if you're free, then you can plant more churches. More people will come to know Jesus. You'll be able to raise up more leaders. You can just see the begging that's happening right now at this point. And I mean, these weren't bad people. Paul wasn't hanging out with a rough crowd. These were good, godly men and women who loved Jesus Christ. And yet they were trying to persuade Paul from doing that, which was contrary to what God was calling him to do. Paul knew what God was calling him to do. And that's why he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Paul was stubborn. I mean, it would have been far greater for Paul to become free, to stay free, right? If he would have been free, then he would have been able to plant more churches. More people would have come to know Jesus. He would have been able to raise up leaders in the church. But yet he was stubborn in his faith. You know, I wish I was this stubborn in my faith. Now, don't get me wrong. I can be stubborn. Anybody else? Anybody else can be stubborn in there? Do you know anybody that can be stubborn? Just don't point to them. I mean, I can be stubborn. Ask any family member, ask any friend, any coworker. I am stubborn a lot of times, but I'm not always this stubborn in my faith. I remember when I first accepted Christ, I was in high school and God had called me out of a lifestyle of drinking and drugs and, and the party scene. And I gave up the drink and I gave up the drugs, but I didn't want to give up the party scene yet because I didn't want to lose all my friends and all of that stuff. And so I remember one night being at a, at a party and a guy came up to me and offered me something to drink. And I said, no, thanks. I don't drink anymore. And he asked why. And my response was, ah, I, you know, I just, I don't want to. And that moment I denied what, what the truth really was. You see, I wasn't drinking anymore because God had delivered me from where I was and God had freed me from the bondage that I was in. And I, and I, I met Jesus Christ personally and I wanted to please God. So I didn't need to do that other stuff anymore. That's why I wasn't drinking, but because I, I was scared, I didn't want to lose friends. I didn't want people to talk bad about me. I didn't want people thinking bad about me. I simply gave them an answer that wasn't true. I allowed other people's definition of success to persuade me from doing what God was calling me to do. Have you ever found yourself in a similar situation? Or maybe God was calling you to say something. Maybe there was a nudging of the Holy Spirit on the inside for you to do something, for you to pray for someone, to say something to someone. But because of being worried about what others might think, or what others might say, you simply were persuaded to do that which was contrary to what God was calling you to do. You know, I see this all the time when it comes to missions trips. Almost every team I've ever led, there's been somebody on the team who is, who is being persuaded by a family member or a friend not to go on the trip. Whether it's because the, those people didn't understand the, the reason of missions trips or uh, maybe they were fearful of that person's life being taken. But they were trying to persuade them from doing what God was calling them to do. And every missionary at that point has a choice to either do what God's calling them to do or to listen to other people's definition of success and follow that. You see, Paul understood where true success lies, and it lies in our ability to follow God, not our ability to listen to others. So if we're going to find, achieve true success in life, first and foremost, we must make sure that we're not being persuaded by what other people deem as successful. The second thing we must do is we must pray and seek God's will. Pray and seek God's will. Paul knew his focus he knew his mission. He knew his calling. How? He simply prayed and sought after God's will. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says this, and now compelled by the spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. See, Paul understood what God was calling him to do. Paul knew that God was calling him, drawing him to Jerusalem. He didn't know what the end result was going to be. He didn't know what was eventually going to happen to him. He simply knew that God was calling him to go to Jerusalem. And that's what he was going to do. For me in my life, a lot of times, I want to know what the end result's going to be. You know, I want to know what's going to happen at the end. If I do this, God, I mean, what's the end? Am I going to have to move to Africa forever? Like what's going to end up happening to me in my life? But Paul, he was simply so focused on God's will and willing to do what God wanted him to do that the end result didn't matter. You know, the same willingness uh, I saw in a family that I met one time in Kyrgyzstan. My first trip to the country was in 2000. 
And, and, and Kyrgyzstan was a part of the old Soviet Union, and the, the main religion is Islam. And we went out one day to a village about two hours outside of the, uh, the town we were staying in to go visit a family. Now, this village was made up of about 100 people. It was the equivalent to a small neighborhood here in the States. And everybody knew everybody. And there was only one family in this village that were Christ followers, only one family that had given their lives to Jesus. So we were going to visit this family just to hear their story. And before we got there, we were told to, to hide all the crosses or anything that we had that symbolized Jesus and Christianity because the persecution in this place was great. So as we got, got to the, the home and we began listening to their story, they began telling us about their son who about a year earlier had received Jesus Christ into his life. And this was a great miracle for their family, not because he was the first one to receive Christ because he wasn't but because he was 17 years old and all of his friends were devout Muslims and they were very anti-Christianity. So for him to receive Jesus Christ, they knew that persecution was going to happen if he did that. And this kid, he knew what God was calling him to do was not to live a life of quiet desperation in his faith, not to live a life that was being silent about who Jesus was, but he knew that God was calling him to go out and to proclaim the truth no matter what the end result was going to be. One night, one day, his father went out to the barn to uh, start some yard work. And as he opened up the barn doors, there was a son hanging by a rope. You see, this kid had proclaimed Jesus Christ too loudly and too boldly. And his friends killed him. And as we sat there and we listened to this family, our hearts began to break. But they were so thankful. They were so thankful that their son had received Jesus Christ in his life. He was not persuaded by what other people thought was successful or not, and that he was willing to pray and seek God's will and be obedient to what God was calling him to do, no matter what the end result was going to be. You see, not many of us are going to experience what this kid in Kyrgyzstan experienced. Not many of us will experience what Paul experienced or the persecution that millions of Christians experience throughout the world today in China or the Sudan or other places. You see, we live in a great country, a country of a lot of freedom. We have freedom to worship, freedom to have the faith that we do, and freedom even to deny that faith when it seems most convenient. Yet God is calling us to a higher standard, a standard that Paul lived out, a standard that this kid in Kyrgyzstan lived out, a standard that says, God, may your will be done no matter what. God is calling us to pray and to seek his will. But I mean, this is tough. I don't know about for you, but it's hard for me to pray specifically for God's will and only for God's will. I mean, when my team is playing, Georgia Bulldogs, I pray for a win. You know, when, I, when, when I'm traveling, my tendency is to pray for safety. And when I'm going to speak somewhere, I pray for large crowds. When, during this whole pregnancy, I've been praying for a healthy child. And I mean, those, things, those are good things to pray for. I mean, to pray for your team to win, you should, some of you should be praying for that. You Gamecock fans, you really need to be praying for that. Harder. I mean, to pray for safety when you travel, that's a good thing to pray for. To pray for large crowds to come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's not a bad thing to pray for. To pray for my child to be healthy, that's good. But God's simply challenging me lately. Ernest, are you praying for my will? And do you trust me enough to pray for my will? A couple of years ago, I read a book that said the greatest question you could ever ask is, is it wise? And then in all situations in life, you ask, is it wise? That's the greatest question you could ever ask. Well, I think the wisest question we could ever ask is, is it God's will? Because was it wise in the eyes of the world for Paul to go to Jerusalem? Probably not. 
Was it wise in the eyes of Paul's companions for him to deliver himself over to the hands of his enemies? No, I don't think so. Was it wise for him to sacrifice so much freedom and so many good works that he could have done to be held in chains? Probably not. Yet it was God's will. And God's will is always the wisest thing for us to do. God's will is not always the wisest thing in the eyes of everybody else around us, but God's will is always the wisest thing for us to do. God is simply challenging us to pray and to seek his will. So if we want to be successful in life, if we want to achieve true success, then we can't be persuaded by other people's definition of success. We must pray and seek God's will. And then the third thing is we've got to be obedient to what God is saying. Be obedient to what God is saying. You see, we cannot listen to others and we can pray and seek God's will all day long. But if we're not obedient to what God is telling us to do, then all that other stuff is meaningless. If God is simply telling us to do something or to say something or to pray for someone or whatever the case may be, and we don't do it, then everything else is meaningless because obedience must follow us praying and seeking God's will and hearing from him. We must be obedient. Paul could have known that God was calling him to Jerusalem, but if he would have stayed in those rural villages and just stayed proclaiming the gospel out there, then he would not have been doing what God was calling him to do. God is looking for men and women who are going to pray and seek his will and then be obedient to that will, no matter what the cost is. And we know that if we are obedient, it will lead to three things. Number one, obedience leads to sacrifice. Obedience leads to sacrifice. Paul's story is a testimony of this truth. I don't want to really give it away for you because hopefully you'll go home and read it. But at the end of Acts chapter 21, what we see is Paul goes into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple of the Jews and the Jews begin telling a rumor about him and they get upset because of that rumor. They begin beating Paul. They drag him out of the temple. They beat him even more. The Roman officials come and kind of save the day and they arrest Paul and take him away. And Paul stays in chains for years Then he gets out for a short time. Then he goes back into uh, a jail cell and then he's eventually killed for his faith. Paul's testimony was one of obedience to God's will, yet it led to much sacrifice. Look at the story of Jesus. I mean, the night before Jesus was crucified, he's sitting in the garden and he's crying out to his father. And he says these words, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed for the Father's will to be done and he, become, he became the greatest sacrifice of all time. So what is God gonna call you to sacrifice today? As we pray and we seek God's will in our lives and God calls us to be obedient, what is he gonna call you to sacrifice? For some of us, it's gonna be a sin or something that's holding us back from him. It's gonna be some area of our life that we haven't fully given over to God and God's calling us today to lay that down at his feet, pin it to the cross, get rid of it now. For some of us, it's going to be maybe some fears or doubts that are holding us back from taking a leap of faith, a step of faith that God is calling us to. Maybe we're fearful of of the unknown or fearful of being alone, or maybe we doubt God's goodness or God's greatness. And so we simply don't do what God's calling us to do. And God's saying today, be willing to sacrifice those fears or those doubts. For some of us, maybe it's a professional situation. Now, I'm not saying that God's calling all of us to quit our jobs and to move to China or something like that. But maybe God's calling you to do something professionally and you need to trust him and step out in faith. For some of us, maybe it's to get rid of some relationships in our life that are holding us back from him. Some of us have people in our life that are holding us back from truly knowing Jesus Christ more intimately. And God may be calling us to give up those relationships. For others of us, maybe it's to sacrifice our vacation time or our summer to go on a mission trip 
Or maybe God's calling us to give more money to the church or a missionary or a nonprofit organization. Even during these tough economic times, what is God calling you to sacrifice? You see, God's will is probably not going to cost you your life or your freedom, but it will cost you. Are you willing to pay the price? One of the greatest British missionaries of all time, David Livingston, says this. If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Catch that again. If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? See, no matter what you call it, God is going to call you to give up something to follow him more. And he's just calling you simply to trust him to trust him. For most of us, it just means giving up our will, what we hope for the future, what we want for the future, trusting that God's desire for us in the future is far greater than your desire. And we must trust that and simply say, God, may your will be done. So if we're obedient, it will lead to sacrifice. If we're obedient, it also leads to kingdom growth. You see, God not only cares about our personal success and growing us, but God cares about the kingdom and about growing the kingdom. And one of the greatest prayers ever uttered was by the mouth of Jesus when he was sitting around with his disciples. And he says, when you pray, you should pray like this. And it's called the Lord's Prayer. Most of us know it. It's recited before athletic events all around the country. And so I'm going to have you guys uh, quote this with me. It's out of Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Let's read this out loud. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Stop right there. Anybody ever said that before? Anybody? 10 of you. Great. Awesome. (laughs) Jesus says, when you pray, you should pray like this. He's not saying that when you wake up in the morning or before you eat or before you go to bed at night, that these are the exact words that you should be saying. He's simply saying that when you pray, that these are the components within this prayer should be the components that are within your prayer. The first component is this. God May you be blessed. May you be honored. Hallowed be thy name. God, you are, to, you are to be exalted and glorified. That should be the number one thing that we pray. And then second, God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about that for a moment. Think about heaven, the place of perfection, a place where there's no crime, there's no racial prejudice, there's no hatred, there's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no Africans dying of malaria, There's no kids being caught in sex trades. There's no coal mines that are trapping workers. There's no earthquakes that are destroying lives. Heaven, heaven is a perfect place. And yet Jesus says that we should pray for God's will that is being done in heaven to be done on earth. That we should pray for that same thing that we want to experience in heaven to be done here. You know, sometimes when we go outside and it's a beautiful day and we've had a great day, we're like, it's like a little taste of heaven. You know, Jesus is saying, why don't we actually pray for a little taste of heaven? Why don't we actually pray that God's will that is being done in heaven would be done here on earth? And if that happens, if we begin praying for God's will and we're obedient to that, then we will see the kingdom grow. We will see people come to know Jesus for the very first time. We will see families healed. We'll see marriages restored when we pray for God's will and we're obedient to whatever he calls us to do. We will see Christ followers loving their neighbors and their brothers and their sisters and people that they don't have a clue who they are like themselves. And the kingdom will grow because we're obedient to whatever God's calling us to do. Obedience leads to kingdom growth. 
The third thing obedience leads to is it leads to personal success. When we pray and seek God's will and we're obedient to whatever he says, we can rest assured that God is looking out for us. My life's verse is Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It says it right there, that God is going to work everything out for good for our, in our lives, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God promises it. It's written down. It's a promise. Yet sometimes this verse seems to be contradictory to our lives. Sometimes this verse seems to be a lie from God. I mean, did God really work out Paul's situation for good? Did Paul really work out this kid in Kyrgyzstan's situation for good? Some of you, you've walked into this place this weekend and you're wondering, is God really working good in my situation? And when we look at this verse, we think maybe this is simply a lie. And you know, from our perspective, when we think about success being, a, uh, when we're successful, when we have enough material possessions or if we're climbing the corporate ladder or if our family is this perfect type of family, if that's our definition of success, then yes, this verse is a lie. But when our definition of success revolves around our ability to simply follow God and whatever he has to say, then yes, Paul's life was a success. He followed God and what God was calling him to do. And it resulted in his imprisonment and eventually his death. Yet Paul, simply because he followed God, he was successful. So how about you? What area of your life are you striving for success in today? For some of us, we're striving to be the greatest friend or the greatest athlete or the greatest at school, or the greatest at work. We're striving to be the greatest parents or the greatest spouse. I think today God's simply calling us to follow him to be great at following him. You see, for me, during this whole process of our pregnancy, God has confirmed to me through my personal time with him, through the encouragement of my family, through taking the baby wise class here at the church, that I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm going to be a great father. I simply need to concern myself with being a great follower of God. And if I'm a great follower of God, I'll be a great father. If I'm a great follower of God, then I'll be a great, a great husband. You see, God is simply looking for men and women who are going to be followers of him. So what would happen in your life if success revolved around you following God and God alone? Would you ever fail as a parent? Probably. Would you ever fail in your job? Yeah. Would you ever mess up in a dating or a marriage relationship? Most definitely. Yet when your definition of success revolves around following God and his will, then when you fail in those other areas, when you mess up, you can turn to God who offers you grace and forgiveness. And then he gives you the strength and the power to overcome the, the challenges and the issues and the sins in your life. Because success is not built on doing good things and it's not built on achieving great things, but it's simply built on following God and his will. Today, may we begin to see the true success in life lies in our ability to follow God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this day. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have as a body of Christ to come here and just listen to your word. Father, I pray that you would speak to us loudly and boldly. God, I pray that as we, all of us, yearn for success in our life, that we would begin to understand the true definition of success is our ability to follow you. 
And then, Father, we wouldn't worry about what other people think. We wouldn't uh, worry about the, the thoughts and the definitions of others, Father, but we would simply pray and seek your will. And then when you speak to us, God, that we would be obedient to your voice. God, we thank you that our obedience leads to sacrifice and it leads to kingdom growth and it leads to our personal success. Thank you, God, for loving us and for caring for us and for dying for us. God, may you speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen.